Okay, welcome to the show, everybody. My name is James Faulkner. I'm here with Jim Mellon. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thanks, James. How are things in the Isle of Man? Is there any signs of life over there? <laughs> I would say the economy is uh, almost fully restored here, actually. And on Monday, all the pubs and hotels open as well. Um, there have been no cases here for 21 days. Um, and the, uh, the construction industry is in full flood. All the shops are open. Uh, I would be very surprised if the Isle of Man has a recession this year. That's good to hear. Um, yeah. So the markets have had a, an absolutely terrific run over the past few months. Um, are they getting ahead of themselves, do you think? Uh, yes. Uh, as you may remember, the last time we spoke, I was recommending that people bought um, some of the fallen angels like IAG Group, Delta, um, and uh, that, you know, they played the what was bound to be a cyclical recovery in some of the main names in travel, tourism, hospitality. Yeah. Some of those stocks have gone up by, have doubled, basically. Um, and... I was a little bit worried because Warren Buffett, as you may have seen, James, sold all his airline stocks. Yeah, saw that. <laughs> Since he sold those stocks, they're up between 70 and 100%. So he may <laughs> not have the touch that he once did. Um, but, uh, you know, the fact that they have become, uh, you know, there's been a feeding frenzy when there is no actual return to full flights and hotel occupancy is indicative of just that it's an excess of money or at least there was an excess of money chasing um, any theme that came along. So I think we're, we, we, we are re-entering dangerous territory. And one of the key things to watch for is that the VIX, as you know, is the measure of volatility. Yep. And I'm sure master investor investors are familiar with it. And you know, when it goes up, there's more volatility. When it goes down, there's less volatility. But the VIX has been going up in a rising market, which is a bad sign. And uh, you know, I, I would say that uh, time to be cautious. There are some areas that I like. I like the financial stocks still in some cases. Um, they've had a bit of a run, but they, you know, they're still incredibly cheap. So uh, if I might give you some names, I'll give you Lloyds Bank here in the UK, which um, I, you know, had to suspend its dividend, but not because it couldn't pay it, but because the government forced it to. I think that remains remarkably cheap. And an old colleague of mine, Jeremy Hosking, who's a very good fund manager, um, has written to Lloyd's and told them to pull their finger out. And uh, he's bought a lot of Lloyd shares. So I think there'll be more and more activism in that area. They're not owned by the British government in any way now, uh, but they are actually dominant in UK, well, the, the dominant bank in UK retail. And uh, we're not going to have a housing collapse which would be very bad for them because they're a big mortgage player i don't think we'll have negative interest rates in the uk which would also be bad for the uk banks um and uh they're selling at a fraction of their book value and on a very high prospective yield so my view is they're a good buy and then you can add to that phoenix group which is a buyer of zombie insurance schemes that's got a very nice dividend yields very well managed company Andy Briggs runs that, and it's a big company. It's quite liquid. I would, you know, say that that's on a prospective yield of around seven percent. RSA would be another one that I would um, uh, suggest that people have a look at here in the UK. And then in on the continent, Allianz uh, Insurance Company in Germany to me looks cheap, as does Swiss Re in Switzerland. 
And if you really want to take a punt, I would buy the French and Spanish banks. So the ones that uh, uh, come to mind would be Société Générale in France, which is a universal bank. It's uh, pretty well run and it's incredibly cheap. And then uh, BBVA or Caixa Bank in Spain, both of which are on very high prospective dividend yields. And both of which I think, and all of them actually, the continental banks could rally by as much as 30% over the next year. Yeah. So I, I think those are those are interesting. Um, and what about um, gold stocks? Because gold stocks have pulled back a little recently, haven't they? As well. But I'm 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 guessing that you you'd be a buyer at this point on the on the pullback. Uh, you know, I've been banging on about gold and silver, and uh, today we're having another run in gold and silver. Um, as you rightly point out, the gold stocks had a big run. I mean, the, the one that I'm a director of, Condor Gold, went up. Uh, three times actually uh, and now it's only up uh, slightly more than twice um, having raised some more money uh, I would say they were a little bit ahead of themselves but you know the pent-up demand for gold and silver is huge um, and as you know I feel that we're going to go into an inflationary period after this deflationary shock and um, so gold and silver are the obvious things to do now gold today the last time I looked was about 17.25 an ounce and silver was knocking on 18 dollars an ounce so my prediction remains by the end of this year 2500 dollars an ounce for gold and 25 dollars an ounce for silver which represents significant upside and you know i don't think there's a lot of downside in a world of very low interest rates for either of those commodities do you think that we're reaching a point now where the current monetary system is is on its last legs, basically, and we're going to see a, you know, some some that being replaced in some form or other in in the next few years, maybe? Is, and, oh, that's a great question. I mean, I, I you know, we won't be replaced by Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> I don't think that the you know that the cryptocurrencies or, or or any form of crypto that's introduced by central banks will take over from the current fiat money. But what will happen is that there's going to have to be some financial restructuring because the amount of debt that's been accumulated by governments in this crisis is phenomenal. I mean, uh, you know, if you look at the ECB balance sheet, it's up, uh, I think, four times since 2008. Uh, similar figures out of the Fed in the US. The UK is a pretty impressive increase in the balance sheet. And what's happened, basically, is that central banks have bought the bonds of their uh, of their treasuries and um, that has sustained low interest rates it's injected money into uh, the economy it's had the desired effect uh, but at some point they're gonna have to stop doing that now they won't unwind it necessarily but they don't won't do any more of it because they know that they'll be creating inflation if they carry on so what I would think is that uh, the idea that's making the rounds is that there would be debt forgiveness between the central banks in countries and their treasuries, and they would just wipe off the, 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 the debt to eat from one to the other. That's a possibility. And because central banks own so much of their respective governments' debt, that would reduce the percentage of GDP represented by government debt dramatically and improve the, um, uh, the, the sort of uh, the financial system of or, or situation of, of countries quite dramatically without, in my opinion, having any negative consequences. Um, but, you know, this injection of liquidity, which represents a transfer uh, payments 
transfer payments to individuals who've lost their jobs and companies that are in trouble has got to come to an end sooner or later. And I said to you the last time we spoke that I thought that the COVID-19 boat had sailed, and indeed it looks like it has. You know, there are some new outbreaks in the United States. Uh, there are increasing outbreaks in Latin America for the first time. Uh, there's been nothing really in Africa of any consequence, but Asia's got it under control. It looks like Europe's got it under control. It looks like we'll be going back to normal. And it looks promising on the front of vaccines, particularly for the Oxford vaccine, which is, you know, uh, in, in trials at the moment and uh, could be available according to Astra, which is the partner of Oxford, as early as October on a mass scale. They're making two billion doses of it now in anticipation of it working. So I think we have to assume that this is going away, um, uh, but that, you know, the recovery, largely because people are frightened, will be a, maybe not the sharp V that some people are thinking, but a sort of, uh, a sort of narrow YouTube, a U, uh, um, rather than, you know, immediate back to normal recovery. But it's been very interesting. And given that- I'm getting very bored. I mean, you know, I just want, <laughs> I want to get into, uh, even if I don't travel, I want the opportunity of traveling. I want to get on a train or I want to get on a plane. I want to do something. Yeah, yeah sure. There are only so many things that you can do uh, stuck at home, I suppose. Um, well, we're not, we're not stuck at home uh, in the Isle of Man. We can do whatever we want now. We can, you know, there's no restriction on movement or going to the office. Um, but it's a small place and, you know, it's, although it's lovely, it, it would be nice to, you know, go and visit the dogs in Ibiza or go to Berlin, anything really. <laughs> if you, maybe we should set up a tour group at Master Investor. <laughs> I'm, I'm up for that, Jim. <laughs> yeah. But we need new ideas. <laughs> um, just going back to the, the, the um, theme of inflation, um, we talked about gold, but what about the rest of the commodity space? Is there anything else in there that interests you? Maybe, you know, the base metals, that kind of thing? <clears throat> yeah, that's a great question. So China seems to be uh, moving at pretty well full tilt at the moment, but its domestic economy is not enough to sustain uh, the absorption of raw materials in the pace that it used to. Um, and uh, because, you know, they've lost a lot of um, export potential due to the downturn elsewhere in the world. And also people are moving production out of China um, to Vietnam or indeed closer to home. So I don't know, but I would, and iron ore is, as a result of what, ha what happened in China is up. People are talking about copper as being a good investment. Um, and it could well be that they are. I've got shares in Rio Tinto, uh, which looks attractive to me at the moment. Um, and at a smaller level, I've got shares in an Australian uh, copper mine called Venturex, which just actually raised some more money today. Um, and that has got a ready-to-go copper mine, which I'm sure will be a very attractive proposition. It's one of those mines that's been, uh, was extant in the 1920s, so a lot of the infrastructure is already there. It's in a good location, very big reserves, all proven up, and it's got its environmental permits. So I would say Venturex is one for master investor people to look at. It's small though. <laughs> and what about, um, what about oil? Because that's, that's been an interesting one lately, hasn't it? I mean. Are we at the, at the twilight stage for oil? I suppose that's, that's pretty obvious at the moment, is it? Well, I don't think we are at the twilight stage. I mean, you know, now that there's been some economic recovery, the price of oil has gone back up and the usage of oil is going up as well. And 
But I think what happened was that the US shale sector, which has developed in the last 10 years, as you know, completely destabilized the established powers in the oil yeah. uh, fields. And then this COVID crisis came along. And, you know, if you lose 10% of your demand overnight, it, there is nowhere to put the oil, which is why you had negative oil prices, um, because people literally couldn't give the stuff away and actually were paying people to take it away. Now that has rectified uh, itself. But what I think will happen is that the oil majors will try and reinvent themselves and they'll do two things. One is that they'll continuously reduce capital expenditure in their businesses um, because they know that over time oil will be uh, replaced by you know, electric power or uh, in the transportation or um, by other forms of, um, of energy, including you know, the alternatives that we all know about. That uh, will mean that they will start to cannibalize themselves. So I think you'd see Shell, BP, Total, uh, Exxon uh, in the future paying, actually paying out bigger dividends as they dismantle. I was just going to say, model. is there actually the potential there for these companies to become really good investments in future? Because they, as you say, if they're winding down capex and things like that, they've actually got huge cash flows. So. That, Presumably, a lot of that could be returned to shareholders over the, the, the next few years or so. Yes. And in fact, if you imagine them like a sort of self-liquidating trust, that could be the way that they will be. And so you don't look at them as being growth stories. You look at them yeah. as being companies with substantially undervalued assets um, that are realizing those assets and gradually returning them to uh, shareholders. So um, I, I'm a bore of uh, Total, Shell, BP. And we've got holdings in all of those. Okay. I don't know enough about the small oil companies to have any real view on it. Um, and um, But I do know that I've got something in my portfolio called Hurricane Energy, which is a North Sea producer, I understand, which is very highly um, leveraged. Uh, and I don't know why I've got it, but I've got it. And it's <laughs> one of those... One of those short-term investments that's become a long-term investment. I'm sure we're all familiar I'm with sure, this. I'm sure everybody's familiar <laughs> with that situation. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, so moving on to something a bit different. Um, you, you like your meta-themes, your uh, money trees, as you like to call them. Um, what's, has anything been going on in that space recently? Especially in the... Yes, so James, that's another great, uh, another great question. So in this pandemic... Uh, Looking at the U.S., which is the always the leader in consumer products around the world, or I say always, but mostly the leader, you've had uh, Beyond Meat, one of the stocks is in this area, in fact, one of the very few stocks in this area has gone up dramatically because the slaughterhouses in the U.S. were particularly badly affected by COVID-19. And uh, they were badly affected because these pandemics spread in very cold conditions and the slaughterhouses are cold and the people work, and they're typically poor people, work in very close proximity to each other without adequate protection. So people were dropping like flies from COVID in the slaughterhouses and a lot of them closed down. That meant that consumers uh, who were eating at home, uh, mostly, uh, weren't given the opportunity of buying fresh meat. I mean, I'm talking in general terms here. So they increasingly tried out the plant-based burgers that are the only things on the market at the moment because you can't buy uh, cultured meat products yet, although you will. Mm. And as a result, you know, uh, 
the sales, which were forecast by um, uh, Jefferies, a big investment bank in the US, of Beyond Meat to be about a billion dollars in 2030, which is, as you know, 10 years away, are expected to be a billion dollars, tracking a billion dollars by the end of this year, 10 years ahead of expectations. So uh, I think consumer adoption in this area will be much faster than people think. So you've got in the US milk market, alternative milks, soya milk, almond milk, um, oat milk, rice milk, has already got 15% of share in the United States in the last decade, up from nothing. In the alternative meat market, it's about 1% share. So brands that you might be familiar with would be corn as an example, yep. Beyond as another example, Impossible Burger would be another example. And they're all coming out with these um, plant-based meat brands. And is, is uh, there to buy at this, uh, this level, do you think? No, I don't think so. No? I, I don't think so. I mean, I think that, you know, it's an eight and a bit billion dollar market capitalization. I think that's quite expensive. Because um, even if it has a, sales of a billion dollars this year and it makes a hundred million dollars let's say net profit you're, you're talking about 80 times earnings and there's better things to buy um but <coughs> the whole area is taking off like um like a rocket and the science is advancing very quickly so in this lockdown i've been writing a book and the book is called news law it'll be out let's say early august and it's about this area and Yep. So what we've done is interview all the key, like I did for Juvenescence, but remotely, interview all the key players on the, um, uh, in the area. And uh, so, and the money is coming in. So for instance, in the first quarter of this year, uh, Impossible, uh, which is a private company, raised $500 million, just like that. And just... Uh, sorry, Live Kindly uh, Stroke Foods United, which is basically a black box that's going to get into the chicken market in a plant-based way, raised $200 million. So money is beginning to come in in a very big way here. And then uh, you're getting companies in the established meat business, like or food business, like Cargill or Tyson, are buying into these uh, alternative meats. And uh, because they know, they can see the writing on the wall. Uh, so a company called Purist, which makes pea protein, uh, just had an investment by Cargill of 75 million US dollars. I mean, these are chunky amounts. Whereas a couple of years ago, the amount of money coming into it was de minimis. And I think this is all plant-based stuff, but you're going to see an increasing amount of money coming into the uh, cultured meat business as well. And some of these companies are now beginning to raise you know, between 50 and 100 million dollars in their Series A. So uh, I think it's a very, very good area to be uh, looking at and investing in, which is why I've written what will be the world's first investment book uh, about the area, or I'm halfway through writing this book. Uh, it's quite difficult, actually, because the concentration levels in this you know, lockdown environment are not as good as if you, if, you, know, you, were, you weren't locked down. Yeah. Even though you think, you know, being at home, uh, because you go and make a cup of tea or you get distracted or, you know, there's something you have to do the washing or, there's something that distracts you, whereas in a normal working environment, it's much easier to concentrate. Um, most of these companies are still private, aren't they, Jim, at the moment? I mean, there are very they few are, but um, options. A lot of them are going to go so, public. A lot of them are going to go public. Um, I'm just wondering, so, is there, are there any companies out there at the moment that might be um, of interest to private investors? Can you give us a bit of a sneak peek into uh, 
what might be in the book. I mean, I, I read the other day that Kellogg um, own one of the biggest um, alternative meat companies um, out there at the moment. But I don't think, I mean, that's flying under the radar for most people, isn't it? Yeah, and you've got to remember that, you know, if they do own something in the alternative meat area, and I don't, I've never heard of that about Kellogg, by the way, but uh, maybe that's the case. I mean, I know Unilever and Nestle have their own uh, amazing burgers and whatever they call them, <laughs> um, which are plant-based uh, burgers. But if they do have it, their percentage of sales relative to what they normally do is very small. So the impact will not be that great. There's a company in Japan called Nissin Foods, N-I-S-S-I-N Foods, which uh, is not the owner of corn. There's another Nissin that owns corn. Uh, but that's quite an interesting company uh, from an investment point of view. And that's quite a big company you can invest in that shares quite well. Um, but there is very little for private investors to invest in now. But I would watch Impossible coming to the market. I think that would be a good one to invest in. I would also watch Memphis Meats, which is the subtle cultured business which is very well capitalized and i'd watch foods united which will be which is called fun f-u-n which is a very well capitalized very well run business we've also got our own um agronomics which is listed which invests in these sort of things um and uh and then of course there's beyond but i think beyond's ahead of itself so uh i'm writing it really so that when the companies come public people will be able to look at the book and say, well, yeah, you know, he talked to this company, it looks quite good, maybe that's one to go for, or one not to go for. So we're looking, we've got, we're gonna mention every single company that we can identify in the space. Yeah. And you're getting some very exotic ones. You're getting one that's trying to grow kangaroo meat in a lab, <laughs> one that's trying to grow foie gras in laboratory circumstances. Um, one that's trying to grow chickens from a single chicken feather. Um, and uh, so there's a, a lot out there or an increasing number out there. Um, but it will ultimately get down to IP and there's very little IP in the plant-based food um, sector. In the cultured-based sector, there's a lot more IP and it'll get down to marketing. And marketing is really important because uh, these are going to be food products will go up against very major uh, companies. So my expectation is most of them will be bought out. If they're, if they're any good, they'll be bought out by the big companies, Unilever, Nestle, Cargill, Tyson. Uh, they'll be taken over because um, they'll all have to have their vegan stroke, environmentally friendly stroke, non-animal cruelty products in the very near future. Yeah. Um Donald Trump's coming up for re-election in the US. Um, how does the, the current situation with the Black Lives Matter protests play into that? <clears throat> I don't really know. I mean, I, I am surprised about how tin-eared he's been about the whole thing. Um, and, you know, the polls have Biden way ahead, but... Uh, what does know, Biden what, do for the markets? I think Biden would be... I don't know. I mean, you know, Biden, I mean, do presidents really make a big impact on markets? I, I'm not sure that's the Trump case. certainly thinks he, he did. <laughs> yeah, until, it, until it went the opposite direction, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so I don't know. I mean, I, I would have thought that uh, the markets will be determined by monetary policy. And 
although Donald Trump would like to think he's got something to do with monetary policy, the Fed is definitely an independent institution. Uh, the Fed has injected, as we know, vast amounts of liquidity. This is having the desired effect in terms of bond prices, share prices, asset prices of all types, but ultimately it will lead to inflation. In order to uh, stop that inflation, they're going to have to tighten. And in the tightening process, a lot of this excess money will just evaporate and stocks will become uh, uh, more reasonably priced. So you might ask, well, what would you invest in? Because if you think the markets are, or a lot of markets are too expensive, then we get back to our old favorites, gold and silver and anything to do with them. We get back to our meta themes, uh, including healthcare generally, because you know who's not going to spend more money on their healthcare given what they've seen recently. Yeah. Uh, including, uh, you know, I would never have invested in old age care facilities, but maybe there's going to be an opportunity now if they can be guaranteed to be safe, uh, you know, highly uh, hygienic. Uh, we're all going to maybe at some point face putting our parents into one of these yeah. uh, institutions. Yeah, been sold off quite heavily, haven't they, recently on the back of the, you know, the care home deaths with COVID-19. Yeah, and, and but, but, you know, I, I, I listened to a webinar this morning with the chief executive of Hong Kong, which is another story. And um, uh, Hong Kong's handled the pandemic pretty well. And uh, one of the reasons is that they really make sure, because they had SARS, if you may remember, and MERS and these other diseases. And they recognized that the old people were the ones who were most vulnerable. So they really made sure they were hygienic, that there was no um, possibility of transmission. And they've had no deaths in their nursing homes, none at all, even right. though they have an old population or an aging population. Uh, and the same could be applied to Singapore, uh, where they have a vulnerable cohort of elderly people. So it is possible uh, to prevent this. I mean, let's get back to another point, James, which is that there's going to be another pandemic unless they do something about agricultural practices, mostly in, in Asia. And if we got a pandemic that was based on antimicrobial resistance, i.e. the antibiotics didn't work anymore, uh, because 75% of antibiotics go into farmed animals and the overuse of antibiotics means that there's resistance in us. That will be on a scale like the Black Death. It will be much, much worse than what we've seen in this COVID-19. So they need to do something about the food supply, about the food security issues. Uh, and, you know, it, it ticks every box as well because it's environmentally friendly. Yeah. It creates new industries. Um, and it, you can engineer all sorts of foods, different tastes, different types of foods, which are much better for the population than the crap that people eat at the moment. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Um, here in the UK, we're approaching the, um, the deadline for the extension of the transition period for Brexit. Um, mm. Is a no deal the most likely outcome at this point? I don't think so. I'm sure they're going to concoct a deal. I mean, my father is an ardent pro-European and we have a Zoom call every Sunday and he was saying, and I knew at that point, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if he ever watches this, but if he does, this is true. I knew that when he said, oh, I think the pan's going to go down because there's going to be no deal and blah, 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 and they've messed up. I knew it was a time to buy the sterling and sterling's <laughs> up 3% this week. Uh, so my view is that sterling settles at around 135, which is, I think it's natural rate against the US dollar, which is 
about the level it was before the Brexit vote in 2016. Yeah. It spiked up a bit because they all thought that the vote would go the other way. Yeah. It went up to 141 and 142. Um, it, it went down to about 112 or 113 in this current uh, pandemic, but that's reasons to do with uh, liquidity issues and flight yeah. to dollars rather than any reflection of the British economy. In my view, they'll do some sort of deal. I really think this is a distraction issue. And, uh, but it's, it suits the British government um, because uh, the economy is depressed as a result of COVID. So any effect on the supply chains or whatever will not really be noticed if we leave the European Union uh, on the due uh, we, We've already left it, but if you know, we, the transition period comes to an end uh, abruptly in October, November or December, without a deal. Good stuff. Um, Jamie. We, get back, we, get, we get back to the, the old point, which is you know, the European Union has a huge surplus with the UK. And uh, so they're more motivated to sell goods to us than the other way around. And they don't have a financial center like London. They never can. They, they, you know, all this stuff about Paris, Frankfurt, Amsterdam becoming uh, alternatives, it was just absolute BS because how many people have actually moved there? Almost none. <laughs> Everything's in London. Everything. On that note, Jim, it's been a it's been a very interesting conversation, and I hope you uh, hope you keep yourself busy in the Isle of Man, and hopefully I'm busy. Hopefully, hopefully, sometime soon they'll uh, they'll let you out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, it's 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 not. You know, all you need is the cage door to be open. You don't have to leave the cage. You just have to know that it's open. <laughs> That's the important thing. Okay, thanks, James. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Jim. Cheers. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.